You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. If you're listening after March 1st, run to your local bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You will not regret it. The book as a forward by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get Unmuted, the book, today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Michelle Moody Adams. Michelle is a Joseph Strauss Professor of Political Philosophy and Legal Theory at Columbia University. Her philosophical interests are in moral philosophy and applied ethics, social and political philosophy, and the philosophy of social science. She's the author of Fieldwork in Familiar Places, Morality, Culture, and Philosophy, and is currently working on a book tentatively entitled Renewing Democracy. In this episode, we talk about civic memory, arguments for and against the destructions of monuments and memorials, the democratic possibilities, and so much more. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Actually doing really well. Thank you, Mike. Good, good, good. So I have a question for you. How did you get interested in philosophy? Well, I probably was born with a philosophical temperament, but it was, and a little bit of my interest was stimulated by my church. Actually, I went to a Unitarian church where the sermons were all very kind of intellectually rooted in things like Kierkegaard and Camus and, you know, really things you wouldn't expect in a, in a normal sermon. But it was actually taking a Plato course in college that just made me sure I could do without philosophy, especially reading the symposium. What was it about the symposium for you? I don't know, the idea of sitting around and eating and drinking and talking <laughs> about philosophy. It just sounded too good to be true. Right, right. <laughs> for those who do not know, the dialogue really takes place of them just sitting around. That is the <laughs> setting. The question that they're interrogating, amongst others, is, is love. But that's quite interesting. That is what came out for you. That's interesting and funny at the same time. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. You didn't go into ancient philosophy. So how, how did you encounter moral and, and political and social philosophy? Why that? The thing that always interested me about any philosophy, Mahisha, was the moral and political dimensions of what people were writing about. So I, I like Plato because of the moral views and the invitation to think about what the world ought to look like and how we, what kind of life is worth living or the kind of beings we are. You know, not everybody answers the question the same way. So that's kind of the fun of being a moral political philosopher. You're never bored with the different varieties of answers to the question. I'm excited about what you are currently working on. And not only do I find it exciting philosophically, but I also find it very, very, very relevant. So you've been doing work recently on monuments and memorials. And I wonder if we can first, I guess, get clear about some of the basic differences and similarities between the two to help us kind of get at the nature of them both. So, so, so what are monuments? What are memorials? How are they similar? How are they different? 
Okay, so uh, it helps to think a little bit about the, the origins of the words. And the word monument comes from the Latin word monere, just meaning basically to remind you of something. And monuments are meant to serve perhaps mainly as uh, focal points for collective memory in, in ways particularly that help a society preserve itself, not just as a political community, but as a community of meaning and value. And it's interesting that for most of human history, the monuments we've constructed are typically very large, even outsized structures uh, that are built to remind us of things we value, maybe individual or cultural achievements, or to mark the occurrence of certain important historical episodes or events, you know, especially wars and things. And when I talk about outsized, I mean, think of the structure you have in, say, the Washington Monument on the Mall. It's 555 feet tall, and at the base, it's 55.5 feet wide, so it's really substantial. It's important also, though, so this will bring us back to the point about the memorials and monuments and their possible differences, is that what makes something capable of serving as a focal point for memory isn't really a function of its dimensions. It's just that this idea of pride in our achievements has become associated with things that are large. And you can, use, you can use the word monument even to talk about structures that aren't man-made. So walking over today, thinking about our conversation, I remembered that these large sandstone buttes in that part of Utah that gets called Monument Valley, they're called monuments. They're, they're not man-made, but they're, you know, they're gigantic. I think one of them is at least 1,000 feet tall. So we're more likely to call a focal point for memory a memorial when what we want to remember, because the word also comes from a kind of uh, memory and reminding, but when what we want to remember involves some kind of loss, whether it's or suffering or shared grief, especially when it's the loss of a person or a group of persons. And so think of the Lincoln Memorial, think of the Jefferson Memorial, think of the Martin Luther King Memorial. You know, those are all about individuals. You can think of, of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial or even 9-11 or to give you a non-American example, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin expresses uh, a kind of memory of shared suffering, whether or not it's your suffering, but it, it's suffering you have some in involvement in as a culture. And so the thing I like to stress about the, the kind of connections between memorials and monuments, so we think monuments have to be big, but memorials are usually you know, they're much more varied in the sizes you can find them in. So people can create a memorial with a mound of flowers, right? And, you know, they don't have to create some building or structure. Or you can dedicate a park bench to somebody as a memorial, as a way of expressing your grief. And I, I think it's, it's really important. One last interesting fact, in recent years, a lot of memorials have been deliberately made impermanent. This was a movement in the sort of late 20th century in Germany where it was they would call them anti-memorials because they were meant basically to last for a short period of time and Why? not. Well, I think people thought that it was a way of acknowledging the fleeting character of certain things that mattered to us. I'm not sure that it was a good choice of, of a you know way of talking, but people, I think, were recognizing that some things needed to be uh, kind of remember it forever, and maybe some things needed to have their memories last a short amount of time. 
I wonder if it's easy for people to get the two confused. So I'm going back to the Lincoln Memorial, the King Memorial. And although they do have memorial in their names, even as we mentioned, we, we have the name memorial, but it seems as if they stereotypically fit what we think about monuments, right? So even the King Memorial, we, we have this image of, of as you describe, of, of, of it kind of looking like a monument of sorts, Right. Him standing up very, very tall. So how do you make sense of the of people who might think that the two may overlap, that in monuments, in memorials, it seems like there's a monument feature there? You've picked up on something really important that many memorials, in fact, are monumental in size, in part because the things we want to remember about the the person or the group that we're commemorating strike us as something worthy of a lot of pride. They strike us as great achievements. You know, you go into the Jefferson Memorial. The statue there is like 19 feet tall. You're looking up and you're thinking no human being is this large. <laughs> right. But th- it's a way of saying we think the achievements were monumental, even as we commemorate them in a way to recognize their loss in our lives. Mm, but you're true. right. Those features overlap. But it, there the word monument is coming in really to talk about the size of the structure and not purely the purpose. So give us some some arguments for memorials. Well, I have several, as you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. (laughs) I I think three, though, really stand out for me as important. So the first of them is that I think every culture, every society really needs these focal points for collective memory. It's a way of kind of establishing that we want to be stable in existence over time, not just about politics, but as a community of meaning and memory. Uh, And it gives us a tangible kind of visible evidence of the things we value, something we can go to and stand around and congregate around, I think helps to create a kind of solidarity. But the the second thing I think is important is that this focal point that creates solidarity actually answers to certain needs that I don't think any formal history can answer to. So remembering the past, obviously, should be partly the task of history. We want historians who are trained to do it right. You know, we want a uh, history that we think of as getting the truth and not just, you know, a version. But there are needs, some of them are intellectual, some are emotional, that people have that history can't address. So people need places to visit and to congregate, sometimes we may need to heal after a tragedy or a loss. I think you see that at a, lo- a lot when people just create a spontaneous memorial when some you know figure in the, their culture dies. That's a what it's a kind of healing involved. Sometimes that healing can help you know create uh, unity out of social division. So think about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in the U.S. and the way for some people, maybe even for many. It became a place where people could come to heal from some of the divisions that had opened up as a consequence of this very contested war. And in fact, Maya Lin, the designer of the memorial, talked a lot about that need to create this quiet place for contemplation. And I don't think history can do that. I don't think a history book or a, you know, even a, a documentary film or any of that can create healing. But there's a there's a third feature that of monuments and memorials that I think is important. They help us think through how we want to understand and maybe reshape our collective identity as a group. You know, what what even as individuals, the things you choose to remember or and the things you can remember, but especially what you choose to remember, tell us a lot about who you think you are. 
and even help you think through what you might want to be in the future and be what you ought to be. So I'll give you just three examples. Think of the role that the Statue of Liberty has often played in, in America, I think, at its best, right, when it's thinking about itself as a place that welcomes immigrants. Or think about um, now that there are lots of civil rights era memorials uh, in parts of the South that, where they compete, really, for cultural space with Confederate memorials. And you can go to find commemoration of the efforts of Black Americans, you know, to, to uh, uh, agitate and assert themselves for their own freedom and dignity. And that's an important way of reshaping American identity. And then one last example of this, a little more complicated, is um, the example of South Africa's Robben Island. So, you know, it contains the prison where Nelson Mandela was held for a good portion of the two decades that he was in prison. It's now a national museum. People go to visit. And the South African sort of cultural self-understanding actually is that this is a testament, this island and the prison, to the triumph of the human spirit over adversity uh, and suffering and injustice. The idea that a place where Nelson Mandela was, was made to suffer could now become an emblem of the new South Africa and the fighting of injustice, I think that's an extraordinary fact. Mm-hmm. As, you're, as you're talking, it, it's reminding me of ways in which different communities have constructed their own memorials uh, locally. And so I'm, I'm thinking about certain symbolic things that a lot of people wouldn't recognize unless you explicitly knew the meaning of. So I'm thinking about hanging tennis shoes on a light post and, and what that represents. I'm thinking about the murals that you'll find in urban communities of people who have passed away over a certain period of time and they remain up. And so I'm, th- I'm thinking about the local ways in which, in which memorials are done that it indicate, and even and even when there's there's accidents per se or shooting, in which these temporary memorials are set up. So I'm I'm just I'm just thinking about I mean as 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 it, we're used to the examples of even a graveyard or the monuments that we've mentioned. But as you as you mentioned before, these these local practices of memorials is so interesting. As you were also talking, it made me think about since you're talking about monuments and memorials, it made me think about recently. And tell me if you're familiar with this case. In South Africa, there was a Gandhi uh, monument. I think it was at a particular university. I forgot which one. And students basically protested to get rid of that monument for two reasons. First of all, they made kind of explicit that about Gandhi's racism. But another interesting reason that they motivated was that they wanted to see South African leaders or fellow South Africans' uh, monuments up. And they felt that not having those up and having people from different places was kind of like a self-hatred. Um, and so that, that, that monument, that monument came down. And so I, I wonder, and that kind of leads me to a whole bunch of questions that I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, but when it comes to monuments, we might say that a person is owed recognition for a just cause. So in relationship to Gandhi, you put him up. I mean, he worked for peace and justice for all, but what happens when the causes are unjust or we detect certain aspects of their history? that is unjust or their viewpoints are, are unjust or the cause was seen as unjust or it was seen as just in a certain time period, but not considered just now. Right. There's no easy answer to this question. I mean, part of it is some legacies that we have chosen to commemorate at various points in, in a history are themselves morally very mixed. So sometimes, you know, if you're talking about Nazi Germany, there were moments in the post-World War II era 
where some people just said some of these Nazi statues, monuments, whatever, are they just embody too much hate-filled violence and a kind of symbolic expression of, of that kind of violence for us to allow them to exist. So some of them were destroyed because they were seen as in some way unmixed, totally immoral, and you couldn't preserve them. But other legacies are a lot more complicated. You've given an example already of Gandhi. There's the legacy of somebody like Cecil Rhodes, who, you know, created a scholarship that now actually lets people of all races and colors go and study at Oxford. But how was the money made that allowed him to endow the scholarship? The, the legacy of that is, is very complicated. And people have fought to have statues of Cecil Rhodes brought down. I think in South Africa, it actually has occurred. The, the efforts to bring these statues down in Britain have been a little bit less clear. I mean, people have sometimes said that you know, they don't mean what you think they mean. I think there has to be an opportunity for open discussion, disagreement, conversation about which legacies are just too awful for us to continue. This, the second thing I would say is that sometimes you have a monument or a statue or a memorial or whatever that, that is the expression of a, of a morally uh, unacceptable legacy. But maybe you want to, put to not destroy it, but put it somewhere in a museum or in some kind of uh, space that isn't a place of public honor. So we say, here is an example of something we never want to do again. Sometimes you don't want to totally, in other words, eradicate a memory of what's bad. But you can't let it stay in a place where it seems to be honoring the memory and you move it somewhere where it's it represents a fact, but no longer a fact that you are giving a kind of celebration to. I think this is how we could handle a lot of Confederate monuments. Instead of taking them down and smashing them, take them down and put them into a museum of some kind where we document the ways in which communities have sought to express, you know, a kind of commitment to let's say in this case, white supremacy that basically was meant to stigmatize black Americans, was meant to intimidate them when they fought against it and so forth, rather than denying that it has this history or that we have this history, you put them somewhere where they're remembered but not celebrated. And there's another version of this actually quite different in, there may be other examples, but in Budapest, Hungary, there's something called a Memento Park opened in the early 1990s as a place where they would remove this kind of open air museum where they display uh, several of the monuments from the communist era that, you know, it's deemed now very oppressive and constricting and confining and uh, and unjust. But do you want to deny that it was part of Hungary's history? The answer they gave was no, and, but they didn't want to celebrate them. It's turned out to be one of the most, a lot like the Vietnam veterans Memorial in the States, It's become in Hungary one of the more popular sites to visit, both for Hungarians themselves, but also other people who come and want to understand uh, Hungary's history. Does it matter for you, uh, on your view, if the monument is the result of donorship? And I'm using monument very broadly. I'm thinking about a building being named after someone who donated money to a university. So does it matter if the monument is the result of donorship and not a statue proper? Yeah, so I'm going to disagree with you, though, a little bit on the premise of your question. I think that when you go on university campuses, most of the buildings that have people's names are not built as monuments to the donor. The donor gets 
some reflected glory to be sure and that's not to be ignored right but the building itself isn't what you typically it isn't a monument to the donor should the donor's name remain on many on such buildings that actually i think has to be asked so if there is a building that students live in on a, and they live in it on a campus that claims to be welcoming diversity of ethnic backgrounds class etc and yet this person whose name is on the building was opposed to all those things i think you do have to ask the question about whether the name should remain so we know that institutions like yale have struggled over this with the names of slave owners on on dorms or on their on college buildings west point has to ask the question right now of whether it should allow one of its main barracks to bear the name of robert e lee who of course was a traitor and fought against the us and in every way shape or form should be seen as somebody at least on the view i would argue for should be seen as somebody who is not an ideal of american military valor but in fact he was a traitor and so they're actually having this very interesting and open debate now about whether to keep the name on on the barracks I'm thinking about what you said just a while ago about that some monuments shouldn't be destroyed, but perhaps in a museum of sorts. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about the other option, which is the destruction. What, what are what are some good and bad arguments for the destruction of monuments? So I think you have to be able to convince reasonable people that there's no way that, in effect, the memory of, that's embedded in this can be transformed. Who would have thought? that you could take a prison that was the, the source of, you know, this, uh, just a horrible moment in South Africa's history, celebrating apartheid, just, you know, trying to silence and crush dissent that fought against it. Who could think that you could take that prison that Mandela was in and others, not just Mandela, obviously, and turn it into something that South Africa could, could see as a source of pride in its future and of the rejection of apartheid? Who could think that? I don't know that you know in advance which structures are eligible for that kind of transformation. And I do think there have been judgments made about some legacies where the worry is that there's no way to transform the symbol that the monument embodies and you have to destroy it. I don't know. I can, there's no formula for saying how you do that. But I do believe that there were some very right decisions made this way. You know, I think if you had a picture of someone beating a slave, for instance, in the American context, and it, the, the person standing is represented as someone, you know, physically admirable and wonderful, and the slave is, the pain is ignored and, and devalued, that would be, for me, a statue you'd have to destroy. But there are other statues that actually come out of the Reconstruction era that are talking, or at least trying to represent slavery, where the story is more mixed. And maybe even mixed, you want to keep the evidence of slavery available to people in some kind of museum setting so that we are never able to deny that it actually happened. And that's always the worry with the destruction that you you erase the memory, in effect. And you, you have to do that, I think, with great caution. This, that leads me to my next question in relationship to memory. Tell us a little bit about the politics of civic memory. Yeah, Political disagreement and debate about what we should collectively remember and, and how we should remember it are central to 
life in any kind of political society, I think, but especially in a democracy. And I don't think we should be afraid of those disagreements, in part because they do help us figure out how we want to understand our collective identity. So that's one thing that these disagreements touch on. You know, and it, this is how in these disagreements, I think our collective values and our shared sense of the past get shaped uh, in the right way. You know, there was a very vigorous and sometimes awfully mean-spirited debate about what the veteran, what the Vietnam Veterans Memorial should look like, where to put it. You know, just should it have been a towering structure instead of this thing you walk down into? But that was an important moment in the history, at least of American democracy. It's not like it solved every moral problem that was raised by the Vietnam War. People. I don't think you should expect a memorial to do all that moral work for you. But the debate about what it should look like, where it should be, you know, should it have all the names of all the soldiers who died? Um, that debate was critical to our shaping our collective identity. But there's one other thing that I think is critical. I think that when you look at the aesthetics, if you will, of any, particularly democracy, but any political society, you look around at the kind of monuments it has kinds of statues it erects, it tells you a lot about who counts, what sacrifices matter, who's really a citizen and who isn't. The philosopher uh, Jeremy Waldron has written, I think, very convincingly that what a political society looks like in this way, who's celebrated in stone, for instance, and who isn't, which sacrifices do you commemorate? This helps tell us about who belongs. So we need to have arguments about what should be remembered and how. If we don't do this, I think we are not accepting responsibility to actually scrutinize the kinds of messages that we're sending to people. Those disagreements are critical. Right, right. And I'm very interested about your response to this question. What is, what is the relationship between speech acts, what we call speech acts, and monuments and memorials? So the, the concept of speech acts is kind of a fancy name for an idea that's really very old. So in the mid-20th century, a philosopher named J.L. Austin wrote a book called How to Do Things with Words that was really just a modern reminder of the age-old truth that words have power, that language has power, the power to do things. And so he developed this concept of a speech act as a way of capturing the power of language to do things. Now, I've come to think, like a few other uh, theorists, that you can expand this concept of a speech act. You can expand it to cover various kinds of expression, not just words, and expression that includes symbolic expression very broadly. Things like monuments, memorials, even flags and other symbols that you can recognize as having the power to do things simply by virtue of what they express. And so to give you it, what I think of as a very good example, still controversial, admittedly, but I follow New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu in believing that Confederate monuments are expressive acts, if you will, that they send really very problematic and sometimes deeply morally unacceptable messages that basically are meant to stigmatize African-Americans and intimidate anybody, whatever their race, who wants to reject white supremacy. And people will say to me, well, how are you sure that they express white supremacy? Well, I'll say it's the evidence is partly in the practice of people who don't want to see the monuments moved or replaced or whatever. 
And the perfect example of this is the reaction of, uh, you know, a whole group of white supremacists to the plans on the part of Charlottesville, Virginia, to move the statue of Robert E. Lee. If that statue wasn't about celebrating white supremacy, stigmatizing people of color, you know, saying that not, some people are not welcome and, you're, and, you know, white supremacy ought to be the, the rule of the day. Why were so many hate-filled protesters rallying around that statue? It was almost like they knew that's where they should be because they, that's what the statue has come to embody, to express, if you will. So that's how I think this concept of speech acts, which I expand to talk about uh, the idea of expressive acts, I think that statues, as I said, even things like the Confederate flag, that they have a power to do things that some of us who just look at them as nothing other than a you know, piece of art or a piece of uh, architecture or a piece of cloth, we think they don't mean anything, but in fact they do. What do you see as the democratic possibilities for memorials and monuments? Yeah, this is a great question. I think about this a lot. I mean, so there are three considerations I would I would offer in response to your question. One of them is is to remember that virtually every important monument and memorial in American history, at least, actually had its beginnings in a process that was meant to be democratic. It wasn't always fully democratic. So things like fundraising efforts on the part of private citizens who wanted something or someone to be remembered. And knowing that that's a very important source of monuments, it's important for us to to encourage contributions to these efforts that get everybody's voices heard. And I should say that there actually are interesting examples of this. So there is this wonderful statue that it is, in fact, a memorial on Boston Common uh, in in Boston that commemorates the first all-Black regiment in the Civil War. Um, And it was finished, it was dedicated in 1897. And when it was first dedicated, it had the names of the white officers who died in the battle. It's the Battle of Fort Wagner in South Carolina. But it didn't have any names of any Black people. It just said, this commemorates white officer X and the Black rank and file. And there were several members of the community who in the 1980s argued that if this is to be the right kind of memorial, we ought to try to recover the names of uh, as many black soldiers as we could who fought and died. And in fact, their efforts were successful, a very democratic effort, I think, to reshape that monument there. But there's a second kind of process that I think is critical. You know, when we're looking for the design or the plan of a monument, we need to make sure that the process that what, you know, they, they call it design competition, that it is as democratically shaped and organized as possible. It ought to reach out to people in all kinds of groups. It ought to have judges of the designs who are democratically selected. And it ought to encourage people from a very wide range of communities to submit designs. I celebrate, Maisha, the designs and the statues that are in local communities. Those are wonderful stories, the murals and everything. But let's also get some of those same artists put to put to work in national projects so their voice shapes them. And then I would add that finally, kind of harking back to a point you made earlier, when we have debate about a memorial, whether where it should be or what it should look like or how it should be reshaped, 
we've got to be ready to open those debates up to everybody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, think about the debate about the 9-11 memorial, how sometimes people try to exclude people who are Muslim from the debate while they can't be part of this debate, people said, but of course they should. And of course you want anything, any grounds on which the memorial exists to be as respectful as possible of every memory that's relevant. And I, I think if we want to get the right kind of collective memory shaping our uh, democracies going forward, we have to have everybody's voice embodied in every aspect of the process that creates That's good. That's good. You have you have served in administrative positions in addition to being a professor. And I am always intrigued by academics who do this, primarily because I've seen the former as a distraction to doing the latter. Can you convince me of the value of professors serving in administrative positions? Well, I can try. I can try. <laughs> I mean, I'll just say really quickly, one thing is that you, even somebody in an administrative position, I think, can often find time to carve out for some of their work. It may not look like the work they did before. So it doesn't have to be a total sacrifice. But as far as the broader value, the, the deepest understanding of the academic values that matter in discussions about resources and their distribution, for instance, on a campus, the deepest understanding of those values comes from people who've had some time, I think, in the professoriate. Business people sometimes are wonderful at raising money, but I don't know that they have always the best sense of the values that ought to shape how that money is distributed. I would also say just the basic management challenges. If you've never been in a classroom on a regular basis, if you've never had to balance research and teaching, maybe a heavy teaching load that challenges you when you're trying to prepare, trying to also do research and so forth, you don't know how hard it can be to be an academic. And I think you also don't know how much actually professors care about their students. If you're on the outside looking in, it's tempting to think that, well, professors just want to do their research. But in fact, the vast majority care deeply about every aspect of university and college life, and only somebody who's been part of it in the inside knows. And then the last thing I would say is that in addition to still having time for some of your non-administrative work, if you're a professor, you learn so much about how a university works, about all the complicated legal and regulatory challenges that, you know, that anybody who cares has to try to meet, and maybe how to position Uh, an institution best for the long run, all the different things that you have to weigh in the balance. They're not always obvious to you when you're in your office or you're in the library or, you know, you're sitting in front of your computer or you're in front of your classroom. You're not always seeing all these things. And I think if you become an administrator, and particularly if you then go back into the ordinary life of the professor, you bring back so much knowledge that will enrich what you do and and the work of your colleagues. Okay, I'm much I'm much more convinced of the value. I'm not convinced that I want to do it, but I am convinced of the value. Thank you so much. When you when you entered the profession, how many black women were there? And how did you cope given the massive underrepresentation? And then here's another question. <laughs> what advice might you give to members of unrepresented groups who may feel like they are always the only one or don't belong given their identity? Absolutely. So I'll take each of those three questions in turn and try to give 
transplants. I won't be able to give you exact numbers, but I'll tell you a few facts about n- numbers. So the first African-American woman to be tenured in an American philosophy department was tenured at Georgetown in 1987. And I can tell you that from that time until the time I was tenured in 1996 at Indiana University Bloomington, the numbers were still very small. Um, and so, and they remain small actually now. Every time you know, one person quits, it's like a, a large percentage of the pro- black and female professoriate disappears. I'll also say, secondly, that it was very hard. And I'll give you an example of how hard it was in the late 1980s, which was a pivotal time for a lot of us who thought we wanted to stay in the profession. It was a really small group of folks. There were, I can tell you of a support group of three that I was part of, one of them included that first African-American woman tenure at Georgetown. And it included me and another woman who now teaches not in philosophy, but in the law school at Penn. And we used to meet periodically at professional conferences for our little support group of three. But, but you need to know we made all the difference. I'll give you one very quick story. I was about to quit philosophy actually at that point because of all kinds of, I'll say, anti-Black, anti-woman bias at the institution I was working at. And at the beginning of, the, of my challenges, I really hadn't told very many people outside my family anyway, one of the people I told was one of the members of this little support group. It just so happened that she had studied with John Rawls about seven years before I completed my dissertation with Rawls as well. She called Rawls up and she said, well, you know, there are not very many of us and maybe we should do something to try to get her to stay. Do you know, he called me, it was a few days after one of our meetings at a conference. John Rawls calls me, my husband knocks on my study door. He says, it's Jack Rawls on the phone. And I have to tell you, Maisha, I had never called him anything except Professor Rawls, but he cared enough to say, we, you know, the folks who are on your committee and the folks who trained you and so forth, we don't want you to quit. Why did I tell you that whole story? I wish, so part of my advice to folks now, I wish that I had been less of a loner. I would have probably been able to find more support and more kind of comfort in the sense of how to proceed earlier. I mean, it was I shouldn't have waited until I was ready to quit. And I my, my advice is don't be a loner. Don't think that other people aren't feeling the strain of being underrepresented and sometimes being unwelcome. And find places where you can share your story and then you get kind of, you get strong again. But also find people not always from your own community, but find people who are willing to help you navigate very choppy waters of this profession. It's still relatively unfriendly to people of color, and it's very unfriendly to women, and put the two characteristics together, and boy, you scare people when you walk in. <laughs> you know? And so you need, you need somebody you can share your experiences with, but then you need somebody who helps you work through your experiences so you can go on and be stronger the next time. That's great. Thank you so much. Michelle, thank you so much for this interview. I enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed it very much, Maisha. Thank you for inviting me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.